welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction This module concerns the issue when people need to start learning their consultation skills in a different way. And this applies to people who are new to the NHS and who might be unfamiliar with the kind of patient-focused and personalised care approach that is widespread, particularly in general practice. But it can also be people who are new to working in primary care and have been working in a specialty in hospital, where there might be a bigger focus on the concrete issues of clinical care. But this sort of approach to consultation skills is new to a lot of people who either work in clinical specialties where there's not much emphasis on it, or who work in other disciplines such as physiotherapy or paramedics, nurses, where the specific focus on consultation skills training can be very different. So this module is thinking about if you're new to this, if you're new to this whole idea of learning consultation skills as a formal process. And the talks and written materials are to try and help people orientate themselves to the benefits of doing this. I'm joined today by Dr. Mark Zobion, who's an educator and GP in the northwest of England. Welcome, Mark. Hi. Hi, Avril. And he's going to talk with me today about the importance of these skills, but more particularly about the ways that people can learn to improve their skills and what things that educators can do about that. So I'd like to begin, Mark, just by asking you this idea that I've proposed here that learning your consultation skills is kind of an academic process, a bit like learning about hypertension or learning about endocrinology. Do you think most people recognise that? I don't think people really come into the profession realising that it's something that is a fundamental component of being a GP. In particular, it's our interaction with the patient and it's a very unique experience. It doesn't last very long, but the effects can last for a long time after the patient and the doctor have separated. Being really highly effective and communicating and what we call the consultation is fundamental to the success of that interaction. I think that people probably on the whole don't appreciate the importance of it when they first come into GP training in particular. Can, can I just say something there? Because I, I, while I totally agree with that, I actually very strongly believe that using these skills in a more effective way would improve the care and and the experience for clinicians, even if they're working in more formal specialties such as orthopaedics or, uh, for example, oncology, because all the human beings that we look after expect us to focus on them as individuals and have experiences as individuals. And without spending a lot of time, we can actually improve both the experience of the patient, but also the clinical accuracy of their care, can't we? Absolutely. I think that when people go into what I consider to be technical specialties, so a technical thing such as changing a hip joint, um, it's perceived that the consultation is perhaps less important. But in actual fact, all the evidence is, is that your recovery from that kind of procedure is helped, aided. In actual fact, uh, all outcomes are improved if the surgeon or the team that looked after you at that time communicate expectations, develop a sense of understanding as to what you expect from that hip replacement. So yeah, the, the benefits of a good consultation are there for everyone in all specialties within healthcare and indeed in life general. Yeah. But, in, but in particular, when we talk about the consultation in general practice, there are less technical things that happen because we're dealing with people's lives. So the consultation becomes primacy really. One of the things that interests me is thinking of this as a valid 
an important area of study within clinical practice and that applies whether you're a doctor, a nurse, a physio, whatever. I think it's very interesting to look at how people have learned to get better at this and I know that for me I made a lot of mistakes earlier on in my career and I thought there must be better ways to do this because that's what I do. I read a lot of books about it and talked to a lot of people about it. Mark, how did you improve your consultation skills and what's helped you to get better at it? Yeah, I would say also, Avril, I made a lot of mistakes and still do. In terms of um, improving, I think the first thing to do is to recognise the importance of it, if I'm honest. Mm. I'm not entirely sure that I understood the full gravity of it when I first started out. In terms of improving... The, the kind of things that I did, I was very reliant on consultation recordings mm-hmm. and very reliant on using what I consider to be academic material to help. So there will be consultation mapping tools. So try to understand in a very specific and measurable way what had just happened. Be very specific and measurable and breaking it down into what we know to be tasks of the consultation and then the skills to enable those tasks to be carried out effectively. So having to take a very kind of specific and measurable approach to the consultation is where I started and still sometimes still do even now. Well I think you've pointed out kind of three probably crucial aspects here. One is looking at the consultations you're doing in some detail using video and so on and using whatever tools there is a variety of them to analyse that, see what happened, see what tasks were achieved, what skills were used, what skills still need to be done. But there's also a huge amount of literature isn't there available about how the skills work there's a big evidence base about how different skills can be used about what the effects are, which skills are better than other skills and so on so there's a kind of background to this that you and I have both come to over many years and I think that's just both in doing our work and also in helping other people to improve their skills I'd like to sort of go back a little bit and just explore a little bit more about what this is about because it isn't just about being kind and nice to people is it it's it's something more about effectiveness and what what I'd like you to sort of talk about is why you think this makes our work clinically safer and more effective it's not just that we're being kind and nice is it we're not girl guides we're actually professionals doing clinical work yeah it it, it is nice to be nice but primarily that's not the reason why I try to understand a patient's perspective or try to demonstrate understanding as to what they're feeling what they're thinking it's because what I need to do is maximize the impact of the intervention so that when they go away from the consultation the likelihood of success of any recommendations are increased and that means that they perhaps participate in the prescription that they've agreed with me that they're engaged in the process of determining the choices that they make based on the evidence that is that is shared and indeed all the evidence is is that if the interaction is a shared one and if people feel understood and their feelings explored, they generally, it's demonstrated, they do far better in recovery and making better choices going forward. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about being nice at all. There is a, a, a whole body of evidence that says that feeling understood, talking about one's illness rather than just the disease, makes a big impacts in terms of how they feel about themselves, their wellness and the choices that they're going to go away and make. I, I think it's really interesting, this aspect. And I still find it fascinating to think that if you engage with somebody and build a relationship with them and say explain their hypertension better actually their blood pressure control will improve significantly for a long time and this applies to lots of other conditions as well and I think the other thing that brought home for me the importance of this 
approach to the consultation where we really focus on the skills of listening and attending to the individual patient in front of us is it makes your clinical skills more effective and you're less likely to make errors, you're less likely to make mistakes and that's less likely to lead to complaints and so on because you don't miss things, you listen more carefully, you listen to information that can be very, very useful. And there will be some examples of this in videos and the accompanying chapters in the TALP materials which we'll refer to as we go along. So we've kind of set out that this stuff is important, that it's got a, a body of knowledge and skill attached to it and there are methods for analysing consultations and improving them and so on. But at the same time, we also know that many people find learning in this area quite difficult. It's, it, it doesn't seem easy to improve your skills in this area. And I'm wondering what you think gets in the way. What are the barriers to learning this, learning how to consult better? Yeah, thanks, Avril. I think for me, the, it starts at the beginning, really. There's a couple of big things that make a huge difference to the success or otherwise. And I think one has to recognise that when patients often come in contact with health services, they come because they have some thoughts and feelings and they have worries. And it's the thoughts and feelings and worries that enable an effective consultation. And indeed, you talk about clinical safety. When patients feel confident to explore and explain their thoughts, feelings and worries, they often can signpost to the clinician exactly what needs to be done. Often the clinician doesn't have to do a lot from a disease paradigm because the patient lays it out for them. So I think there's a big part for me where one of the areas for improvement is to understand that people bring feelings to the consultation. If we don't um, unpack some of those feelings and understand them, uh, we can't understand why they're worried and we can't understand what it is that they need from us. I think that makes absolute sense and that was very lucidly put, I think. So... When you put it like that, it seems very obvious. And at the same time, uh, there is a kind of resistance sometimes to exploring feelings or understanding the patient as an individual. And even if people kind of get it, they often find it hard to learn how to do this better. So do you think there are some barriers in people learning to consult uh, or to improve their consultation skills that kind of make it difficult for them to improve? What what are the barriers, do you think, in improvement? I think if I go in reverse order, the thing that gets in the way is often people are trained around disease Mm. and um, that's the space that they're most comfortable so when when a clinician moves away from talking about disease and talking about a person's feelings it's probably territory that they've not been trained to be in before Mm. Um, the other thing about going into somebody's feelings and understanding truly why they're in the room is I suppose you're not quite sure where it might end up Mm. you as a as a clinician there's a loss of a locus of control Mm. when you're talking about disease as a clinician you're on kind of safe territory. Mm. When you talk to a patient and they start to talk about their feelings, it's uncharted territory and it may go anywhere. So there's the perception that things will take longer, will slow down. The patients will express feelings to you that you're unable to cope with or manage. And in a, in a pressed day when things are really busy, that's often a risk that is perceived not worth taking. That's really interesting. And I think that idea, that perception that this will all take a very long time and that it takes longer, uh, I think is a very significant barrier. Although actually, I would like to set out the case that it's the opposite, that actually, if you really listen carefully to people and understand where they're at and what's going on, that's actually very time efficient. And there is a, in the TALP module nine teaching methods, there's an example of this where if you, if I say to you, I 
ask you 20 questions about your recent holiday, it'll take me quite a long time to find 20 little facts. But if I just say to you, Mark, tell me all about it, you'll tell me all the most important things very quickly. And so in, in the TALP module, you know, how does not asking questions yield more information, which is in TALP module three, I think people can learn skills which yield a lot, but actually don't take longer. And to come back to this thing about the feelings, people often, I think, think that if somebody's expressing strong emotion, upset, anger, fear, whatever, that it's then the clinician's job to fix that and to make them feel fine and to make them feel better. Whereas actually, if somebody's feeling very upset because their father's died or because you've just told them they've got cancer or something, it's not, you can't fix that, you can't make that better. But by recognising the feeling, accepting the feeling and and sort of feeding back to them that yes I understand you're really upset about this whatever it is that actually moves the consultation further forwards um, so there's a way in which these skills are actually more time efficient aren't they really exploring a patient's feelings um, or at least hearing them and acknowledging them accelerates the consultation without a doubt mm. um, I think that if you ask a series of closed questions hoping to get the golden nugget you could be there forever um, so there's something really important about ex- getting a patient to ex- explore and express their feelings because they will take you to what matters to them very, very quickly. Yeah. And that enables you later on in the consultation to be able to come up with a tailor-made package that matters. And they're much more likely to follow it through, aren't they? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So we've talked about two aspects here. One is um, people perhaps aren't aware of the formal intellectual and academic underpinnings of this work. And also, as you say, they may be a bit uneasy about going off the disease focus, but trying to shift the focus towards the patient. I think within the NHS as well, there's a general assumption that it is a good thing to focus on the individual as the sort of focus of our care, isn't it? And when we're thinking about ethical issues, for example, promoting autonomy is seen as one of the key ethical values that we try and promote in our work. Do you think that there are other approaches to healthcare worldwide where the individual is less important? Yeah, thanks, Dad. That was a really important question. I think that for some of our trainees who come from international backgrounds, I think quite often the family is the focus more than the individual. Um, and I think that's perfectly legitimate. However, within the UK or the NHS England environment, um, we're very much patient-centred and that's, that's primacy. So there is a there does need to be a shift, I think, for some of our trainees and some of our clinicians to understand the culture in which they find themselves and the types of expectations of what it means to be a clinician working here. Um, that's not to negate any of their past experiences in actual fact there's a golden opportunity to have both sets of skills but one thing that must happen is that the patient who presents in the room within the construct that we have here needs to be uh, understood and their they need to be their feelings need to be explored and their expectations need to be understood before embarking on coming up with solutions or some of the questions to do with any disease that may or may not be present Thanks, Mark. I think that's really fascinating. And I think you're absolutely right that we have opportunities here to kind of cross fertilise in a way, because cultures where the family is the primary sort of unit have massive strengths in terms of looking after each other and helping each other, and particularly when they're ill. And at the same time, within that, clinicians need to be very 
aware of the individual's needs within that larger context. And I think when we're very individually focused, as we tend to be within Western practice generally, not just within the NHS, but across the Western world, what we also need to do is to remember that each individual exists in a context. And that might be a family, it might be a social group, it might be a community. And we have to take that into account as well. And I know years ago when I was an RCGP examiner, I was very fascinated watching videos from all around the country that in different parts of the country, people use different words for the same symptoms so they might describe feeling peely wally in scotland or mazy in norfolk or whatever and it isn't just these language issues but there are also ways in which different communities and different families deal with problems and we need to be very much aware of the individual and that community setting so i think that's a really important point and ways in which we can learn i think from the strengths of everybody's approach Now, our job as educators is to help people see the value of improving their consultation skills, not just to pass their exams, but because it makes their work easier and makes their life happier and means they can go home with energy to spare, as as the TALC module one talks about. But I'd like to think now about what we can do as educators to really help people up their game when it comes to consultation skills. What kind of approach do you take to that, Mark? Yeah, I think for me, Avril, every bit of information that you can possibly get beforehand is, is is mission critical, really. Anything you can do to make that consultation run more smoothly. So, for example, I ask clinicians before the consultation to try and do some homework. If there's a, a, a clinical record, look at it. Look at the last few consultations. Uh, look at some of the, the, the types of presentations this person has come with before. What kinds of medications they're either on or they've had before to try and build up a picture. The more granular the picture, the better. That has a a huge effect on the consultation. All too often when the patient presents and the clinician and the patient have a conversation, it's quite evident that the clinician has background knowledge as to that patient. And that almost immediately improves the relationship. Conversely, if the doctor or the clinician hasn't done the review of the clinical records, the patient can often feel a bit perplexed or vexed that it appears the clinician doesn't know them hasn't been aware that they've been in contact with services before. So that's where I start. I think that's really important. And of course, TALP module one, which is about beginning consultations effectively, has whole chapters on how to prepare before the patient even walks in the room. And I I think it goes beyond just that sense of having a good relationship and, and increasing trust, which obviously it does. But it's clinically really important, isn't it? So if somebody comes in, let's say, with swollen ankles and you haven't clocked that they started amlodipine a couple of weeks ago, you're missing really important clinical information. And if you don't read the letter from the hospital where they went two weeks ago, you're letting yourself down in terms of risking making an error or, or, or not really being able to put your clinical care in context. So I, th- I think that's really, really important. And of course, people, if you say to somebody, well, I can see from your records you started this drug and now I'm thinking about the side effects of that drug, they've got to trust you much more because you're seeing them as an individual with a particular at a particular point in their illness or their disease. And it shows that you've paid some attention and taken some trouble. And I think people don't really, as the Americans say, people don't really care what you know until they know how much you care. And I, I find that a little bit sort of sentimental because I think you have to know things as well I'm a bit of a hawk on that I like people to know a lot Um, but at the same time I think you can only use your knowledge effectively if people know that you care as well yeah I think 
for me, there's two parts here. We're not saying that caring and being empathic is the only part of this that matters. You need to know stuff too. And the more stuff you know, the better. Um, so they, the two of them, the, the, the relationship and the consultation go hand in hand with knowledge. One, one supports the other. We all too often get situations where clinicians so heavily invested in the relationship and forget the purpose or, or perhaps uh, are very heavily invested in the science or the disease and forget that there's a person there. Yeah, no, I think that's beautifully put. So what other things do you do to help people develop their skills here? Uh, you mentioned earlier on that you you yourself used video quite a lot. So how do you use video to help people develop? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, the first thing to do is to say to any clinician, is there a readiness to video? How do you feel about that? Is that something that you might consider? For a lot of us, actually, being videoed and seeing ourselves and hearing our voices for the first time, it's really quite daunting. But there's something about being prepared to be videoed that says, I'm in the business of understanding the importance of this. I'm in the business of being the best I can be in this, in this interaction with the patient. And that usually, people want to be videoed very early in their development, is usually a real um, demonstration of, or a marker or a proxy for future success. But in terms of the content of videoing, the thing about videoing is, what it allows you to do, it allows you to go back and it allows you to watch it together uh, with an assessor or with, a, with a, a mentor or a trainer. It allows you to stop it. It allows you to share it, perspectives, try and close the gap on perspectives. It allows you to go back again and again. It's a repository to see improvement. It's a way of being specific and measurable with some of the tools that I had mentioned earlier, some of the consultation mapping tools that come with some of the models. It allows you to think about the tasks, you know, the, the various steps that you go through, but also it allows you to think about the things that you do to enable you to do those tasks well or better. Mm. And I have a saying, Avril, that all human behavior is purposeful. So the thing about video is you don't just get to hear the spoken, spoken word, you get to see the movements of people. And you and all too often in real time they're missed. So with a video, you get to see that at a level that you wouldn't do otherwise. Mm. I think that granular, very detailed approach uh, is really important. And I think one of the things you're highlighting there, which I'm going to reiterate because it's so important, is that you have your knowledge, but you've also got to have know-how. And the, the consultation has got various tasks, such as establishing a rapport, such as finding out what this person wants to talk about and finding out the details of what's going on for them, such as giving them an explanation that makes sense to them. These are tasks. But in order to achieve those tasks, you have to use certain skills. And that's know-how. It's not knowledge, it's know-how. And when you've got those skills in place, you can use video either to see where the skills are used or video to see where the skills are missing and then you know which one to practice next. And you were talking about specific and measurable and all the talc modules have little checklists in for when you're teaching and learning the consultation. So let's say you're learning about building a rapport or learning about how to set an effective agenda at the beginning of a consultation. There are little checklists for the skills so you can watch that snippet of video that is at the beginning and actually say, well, were all the components of setting an effective agenda there or not? It's not like an opinion, were you nice to this person? Because what might seem quite nice to one person might seem very abrupt to somebody else. But actually, objectively, did you ask them, were they planning to talk about anything else today? Did you give them an opportunity to, to mention more than one thing, for example? And so this granular, specific, measurable approach, I think, is, is absolutely key, isn't it? And, and it, it then leads to effective feedback, because if you've got good feedback, that's to say feedback that tells you where you need to go next, 
you're going to be able to improve by picking the next skill along, aren't you? Absolutely. I think the other thing about the approach is it builds confidence. Mm. I hear from a lot of learners that they are they perceive themselves to not sound the right way or look the right way. And by talking about the consultation in a very almost academic way with specific and measurable targets and the know-how, you depersonalise it mm. and you give everybody the opportunity to be successful. Yes. Yes. It takes away the way do I sound, the way I sound, the way I look. Yeah. You get into a whole new space where this is achievable if you follow the steps and you make the right progress. Yeah, that's that's a very very interesting and important point actually, because this is not about the individual as like uh, uh, like are they any good at this or are they nice enough or whatever. If you listen to people and feedback accurately to them what they've said to you, so they know you're listening or you summarise effectively, that will always be effective it's like you know a scalpel that's sharp enough will always cut and the ear is as mighty as the scalpel as we like to say in talc and if you use it effectively it will always work and i wanted to ask you a little bit about training people to listen a bit more effectively because i think you've got a video technique for that as well yeah one of the things that i I do have is that i will not just watch the video from the beginning to the end Uh, i'll agree with the learner that will stop every 10 seconds Uh, and the reason for doing that is because I want to get us down into some real detail about what we heard what we saw every move that was made not necessarily because in the grand scheme of things it's all important but it's about turning the learner on to the level of detail that some of us can see and that level of detail will enable them to develop their skills around listening demonstrating that they're listening demonstrating to the patient that they're engaged or perhaps it demonstrates that there's things missing. And so doing it in 10 second chunks, which is laborious and it can take several hours to go through one consultation, is a worthwhile pursuit. And it's worthwhile doing very early on in training because you really do sharpen your acuity around some of the issues. I think that's really interesting. And I, I, I've never been brave enough to do a whole consultation that way, I must say. But um, often if you start at the beginning and play 10 or 15 seconds and just say to the learner, what did that patient actually say? what what I find is they often say they kind of infer what they think the patient meant not the actual words and if you get people to actually focus on the actual words and and I'll give you an example somebody comes in and says oh I've only come because my girlfriend's worried about this mole if you ask some trainees to repeat that what they'll say is he's worried about his mole or this man's got a mole now that's not what actually that's not the words he said that's not his actual words whereas if you say his actual words which is that he's only come in because his girlfriend's worried about his mole that's a slightly different thing it's somebody else who's worried for a start but also it may tell you why is he not worried is it because the mole's on his back and he can't see it or because he doesn't care or because he's already seen somebody else about it you don't know but those few words tell you a huge lot about how that person came to be there and and that kind of meticulous doing it in in few second increments is so powerful and one trainee said to me that and he was a capable person who was you know very able but we did this with a consultation and he said when I saw the patient I felt like I'd seen a photograph of them but now I've been through this I feel like I've read a novel about them it's like they've come into 3d because there's so much as you say so much information in every word that people use or every movement that they make um, that we can if by careful observation we can save ourselves a huge amount of time because we if we absorb that information by paying attention we don't have to ask loads of questions or work out what questions to ask because the information's already coming to us spontaneously as it were isn't it 
Yeah, I think that what he's able to demonstrate is when people apply a very strong filter onto a consultation. So if a doctor is trained in disease, they'll often hear the word mole because mm. they know that that's one of the things that they need to, they're going to have to look at and sort out. The fact that this particular example you gave, the girlfriend sent him or recommended he attend, there's a different context now to the mole. Mm. And if you're not used to talking about the context, you're just talking about the mole. Mm. This is a way of now broadening the, the ask of the, the learner or the clinician to think about the person and their context. One of the big areas that is underexplored and underdeveloped is that of the psychosocial context for people. It's something that is missing a lot of the time, but it's often the reason why they're in attendance or often the thing that they're going to have to check in on when they get home. Yes, yes. By doing micro skills like this, you completely, you unpack somebody's life often Mm. and then you then have to get it back into alignment again at the end of 10 or 12 minutes. I think it's very interesting that thing about observation too, because if you see, let's say your man comes in saying his girlfriend's worried about his mole, but you might get some very different senses of what kind of worry that is from, or what you can practically do about it from somebody who comes in in a sharp suit who you happen to see parking his BMW outside compared to somebody who comes in who maybe you already know is a drug addict and may neglect their own health. Or maybe somebody who comes in wearing um, construction gear and you know that for them taking time off work might be mean no money on the table, no food on the table because there's no money that week. So the context really matters, doesn't it? And, and like what even the management might matter a lot according to who's got that mole and what they want to do about it and in what way. So, so we can learn a lot just by careful observation. I think what about other ways of training people to observe? I mean, how can we help people to train their observation skills by using the wider world? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. So pre-pandemic, Avril, I would notoriously take a learner to, uh, I won't mention the name of the coffee shop i don't want to have a conflict but we would go to the coffee shop and um, i would ask the learner to just talk about the environment in which we were we found ourselves and pick up pick a couple or, or a group of people to talk about what they perceived to be happening in the con- in the conversation so we would be out of earshot but just to walk me through what they think was happening does he like her does she, does, does she like she does he like her and just to get a sense of and then asked why why do you make these assumptions what are what are you witnessing what are you seeing what are people wearing? What does it mean when a, when, a, when a lady's there and a baby's in a pram and she's with, it would be perceived to be her mother, you know? Uh, there's so much to learn from the, the human experience and it's fun as well. What people watching and watching videos, I've got to say, is fun. It is yeah, fun yeah. to see people. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a phenomenal gift that when you do this and you start to understand why people do what they do, why they say what they say, why they feel what they feel, it's a, it's a phenomenal gift. So this isn't just applicable to the clinician and the patient. This is applicable to any learner when they, when in their own life. So you, you, your acuity and your sense of understanding of the world around you is improved. And that can't be a bad thing. No, indeed. And, and I'm glad you brought up this idea of fun because I think... Um there's often a perception that clinical work is terribly difficult and hard and draining and exhausting and obviously it can be all those things at times but it's rewarding in that um, for me for example there isn't any such thing as a sore throat there's only a sore throat attached to a human being or as part of a human being and every human being's sore throat means something different to them and means something different in the context of their life and for me it's very interesting to say well 
I'm talking to this person, you know, what are you worried about with this sore throat? Because some people will say, I'm about to give a keynote lecture to 4,000 people and I'm terrified. And that's what the sore throat means to me. Whereas somebody else might be kind of hopefully thinking they can get a day off school or something. And for me, having that spectrum and understanding is then very rewarding because if you get it right and you understand that individual, what they say when they leave is, thank you very much, doctor. I feel better now. Or they'll come another time and they'll say, I especially wanted to see you because you were so nice about when my little child had this and now I've got this awful problem I need to ask you about. And for me, that coming back from the patient actually gives me energy. It's not draining. I find that rewarding and that uplifts me, makes me feel better and it makes clinical work fun and interesting and enjoyable. So these skills can actually really, I think at the bottom line is they're good for clinicians as well. I don't know if you agree with that yeah I, I i couldn't agree more in actual fact i would even say i i seek out patients when i need a boost um i will go and find patients and i will willingly engage with patients um either in the practice or, or on the on the street because it, it's it's great to hear about what's going on in their life you know it's great to hear the kinds of things that matter to them um it is fun uh, it can be difficult and it is difficult at times especially at the end of a long day but um, all too often they're the times when it's just worth leaning in that bit more and listening that bit harder when you need it the most as a clinician to be honest mm. I think that's very true very true well I'm going to sum this up by saying that if we pay attention to learning our consultation skills and all the modules of TALC go through this in great detail with supporting materials videos and so on I think we can make this shift from being interested in the diseases that have the patients and rather shifting to being interested in the patients who have the diseases and being able to bring our knowledge of disease, which is so interesting as well. Clinicians are interested in diseases, of course, but bringing our knowledge of diseases with our know-how of how to help that individual patient with that disease can make our work so much more satisfying. So thank you very much, Mark. That's been really interesting and thank you for your insights. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you, Apple. Thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.